Chapter Seven of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Seven. Mr. Grice discovers Miss Amelia. To return to my own observations. I was almost as ignorant of what I wanted to know at ten o'clock on that memorable night as I was at five, but I was determined not to remain so. When the two Mrs. Van Burnham had retired to their room, I slipped away to the neighboring house and boldly rang the bell. I had observed Mr. Grice enter it a few minutes before, and I was resolved to have some talk with him. The hall lamp was lit, and we could discern each other's faces as he opened the door. Mine may have been a study, but I am sure his was. He had not expected to be confronted by an elderly lady at that hour of the night. Well, he dryly ejaculated, I am sensible of the honor, Miss Butterworth, but he did not ask me in. I expected no less, said I. I saw you come in, and I followed as soon after as I could. I have something to say to you. He admitted me then, and carefully closed the door. Feeling free to be myself, I threw off the veil I had tied under my chin, and confronted him with what I call the true spirit. Mr. Grice, I began, let us make an exchange of civilities. Tell me what you have done with Howard Van Burnham, and I will tell you what I have observed in the course of this afternoon's investigation. This aged detective is used to women, I have no doubt, but he is not used to me. I saw it by the way he turned over and over the spectacles he held in his hand. I made an effort to help him out. I have noted something today which I think has escaped you. It is so slight a clue that most women would not speak of it, but being interested in this case, I will mention it, if in return you will acquaint me with what will appear in the newspapers to-morrow. He seemed to like it. He peered through his glasses and at them with the smile of a discoverer. I am your very humble servant, he declared, and I felt as if my father's daughter had received her first recognition. But he did not overwhelm me with confidences. Oh, no, he is very sly, this old and well-seasoned detective and while appearing to be very communicative, really parting with but little information. He said enough, however, for me to gather that matters looked grim for Howard, and if this was so, it must have become apparent that the death they were investigating was neither an accident nor a suicide. I hinted as much, and he, for his own ends no doubt, admitted at last that a wound had been found on the young woman which could not have been inflicted by herself, at which I felt such increased interest in this remarkable murder that I must have made some foolish display of it. For the wary old man chuckled and ogled his spectacles quite lovingly before shutting them up and putting them into his pocket. "'And now what have you to tell me?' he inquired, sliding softly between me and the parlor door. Nothing but this. Question that queer-acting house-cleaner closely. She has something to tell which it is your business to know. I think he was disappointed. He looked as if he regretted the spectacles he had pocketed, 
and when he spoke there was an edge to his tone I had not noticed in it before. "'Do you know what that something is?' he asked. "'No, or I should have told you myself. "'And what makes you think she is hiding anything from us?' "'Her manner. Did you not notice her manner?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'It conveyed much to me,' I insisted. "'If I were a detective, I would have the secret out of that woman or die in the attempt.' he laughed this sly old almost decrepit man laughed outright then he looked severely at his old friend on the newel post and drawing himself up with some show of dignity made this remark it is my very good fortune to have made your acquaintance miss butterworth you and i ought to be able to work out this case in a way that will be satisfactory to all parties he meant it for sarcasm but i took it quite seriously that is, in all appearance. I am as sly as he, and though not quite as old, now I am sarcastic, having some of his wit, if but little of his experience. Then let us to work, said I. You have your theories about this murder, and I have mine. Let us see how they compare. If the image he had under his eye had not been made of bronze, I am sure it would have become petrified by the look he now gave it. What to me seemed but the natural proposition of an energetic woman, with a special genius for his particular calling, evidently struck him as audacity of the grossest kind. But he confined his display of astonishment to the figure he was eyeing, and returned me nothing but the most gentlemanly retort. I am sure I am obliged to you, madam, and possibly I may be willing to consider your very thoughtful proposition later, but now I am busy, very busy, and if you will await my presence in your house for half an hour... Why not let me wait here, I interposed. The atmosphere of the place may sharpen my faculties. I already feel that another sharp look into that parlor would lead to the forming of some valuable theory. You... Well, he did not say what I was, or rather, what the image he was apostrophizing was, but he must have meant to utter a compliment of no common order. The prim courtesy I made in acknowledgment of his good intention satisfied him that I understood him fully, and changing his whole manner to one more in accordance with business, he observed after a moment's reflection, You came to a conclusion this afternoon, Miss Butterworth, for which I should like some explanation. In investigating the hat which had been drawn from under the murdered girl's remains, you made the remark that it had been worn but once. I had already come to the same conclusion, but by other means, doubtless. Will you tell me what it was that gave point to your assertion? There was but one prick of a hat-pin in it, I observed. If you had been in the habit of looking into young women's hats, you will appreciate the force of my remark. The deuce was his certainly uncalled-for exclamation. Women's eyes for women's matters. I am greatly indebted to you, ma'am. You have solved a very important problem for us. A hat-pin, huh, he muttered to himself. The devil in a man is not easily balked. Even such an innocent article as that can be made to serve when all other means are lacking. It is perhaps a proof that Mr. Grice is getting old, that he allowed these words to escape him. 
but having once given vent to them he made no effort to retract them but proceeded to take me into his confidence so far as to explain the woman who was killed in that room owed her death to the stab of a thin long pin we had not thought of a hat pin but upon your mentioning it i am ready to accept it as the instrument of death there was no pin to be seen in the hat when you looked at it none i examined it most carefully he shook his head and seemed to be meditating as i had plenty of time i waited expecting him to speak again my patience seemed to impress him alternately raising and lowering his hands like one in the act of weighing something he soon addressed me again this time in a tone of banter this pin if pin it was was found broken in the wound we have been searching for the end that was left in the murderer's hand and we have not found it it is not on the floors of the parlor nor in this hallway what do you think the ingenious user of such an instrument would do with it this was said i am now sure out of his spirit of sarcasm he was amusing himself with me but i did not realize it then i was too full of my subject he would not have carried it away i reasoned shortly at least not far he did not throw it aside on reaching the street for i watched his movements so closely that i would have observed him had he done this it is in the house then and presumably in the parlor even if you did not find it on the floor would you like to look for it he impressively asked i had no means of knowing at that time that when he was impressive he was his least candid and trustworthy self would i i repeated and being spare in figure and much more active in my movements that one would suppose from my age and dignified deportment i ducked under his arms and was in mr van burnham's parlor before he had recovered from his surprise that a man like him could look foolish i would not have you suppose for a moment but he did not look very well satisfied and i had a chance to throw more than one glance around me before he found his tongue again an unfair advantage ma'am an unfair advantage i am old and i am rheumatic you are young and sound as a nut i acknowledge my folly in endeavouring to compete with you and must make the best of the situation and now madam where is that pin it was lightly said but for all that i saw my opportunity had come if i could find this instrument of murder what might i not expect from his gratitude nerving myself for the task thus set me i peered hither and thither taking in every article in the room before i made a step forward there had been some attempt to rectify its disorder the broken pieces of china had been lifted and lain carefully away on newspapers upon the shelves from which they had fallen the cabinet stood upright in its place and the clock which had tumbled face upward had been placed upon the mantel-shelf in the same position the carpet was therefore free save for the stains which told such a woeful story of past tragedy and crime you have moved the tables and searched behind the sofas i suggested not an inch of the floor has escaped our attention madam my eyes fell on the register which my skirts half covered it was closed i stooped and opened it a square box of tin was visible below at the bottom of which i perceived the round head of a broken hat pin 
Never in my life had I felt as I did at that minute. Rising up, I pointed at the register and let some of my triumph become apparent, but not all, for I was by no means sure at that moment, nor am I by any means sure now, that he had not made the discovery before I did and was simply testing my pretensions. However that may be, he came forward quickly, and after some little effort drew out the broken pin and examined it curiously. I should say that this is what we want, he declared, and from that moment on showed me a suitable deference. I account for its being here in this way, I argued. The room was dark, for whether he lighted it or not to commit his crime, he certainly did not leave it lighted long. Coming out, his foot came in contact with the iron of the register, and he was struck by a sudden thought. He had not dared to leave the head of the pin lying on the floor, for he hoped that he had covered up his crime by pulling the heavy cabinet over upon his victim. Nor did he wish to carry away such a memento of his cruel deed. So he dropped it down the register where he doubtless expected it would fall into the furnace pipes out of sight. But the tin box retained it, is that not plausible, sir? I could not have reasoned better myself, madam. We shall have you on the force yet. But at the familiarity shown by this suggestion, I bridled angrily. I am Miss Butterworth, was my sharp retort, and any interest I may take in this matter is due to my sense of justice. Seeing that he had offended me, the astute detective turned the conversation back on business. By the way, said he, your woman's knowledge can help me out at another point. If you are not afraid to remain in this room alone for a moment, I will bring an article in regard to which I should like your opinion. I assured him I was not in the least bit afraid, at which he made another of his anomalous bows and passed into the adjoining parlor. He did not stop there. Opening the sliding doors communicating with the dining room beyond, he disappeared in the latter room, shutting the doors behind him. Being now for a moment alone on the scene of the crime, I crossed over to the mantel-shelf and lifted the clock that lay there. Why I did this I scarcely know. I am naturally very orderly, some people call me precise, and it probably fretted me to see so valuable an object out of its natural position. However that was, I lifted it up and set it upright, when to my amazement it began to tick. Had the hands not stood as they did when my eyes first fell on the clock, lying face up on the floor at the dead girl's side, I should have thought the works had been started since that time by Mr. Grice or some other officious person. But they pointed now, as then, to a few minutes before five, and the only conclusion I could arrive at was, that the clock had been in running order when it fell, startling as this fact appeared, in a house which had not been inhabited for months. But if it had been in running order, and was only stopped by its fall upon the floor, why did the hands point at five instead of twelve, which was the hour at which the accident was supposed to have happened? Here was matter for thought, and that I might be undisturbed in my use of it, I hastened to lay the clock down again, even taking the precaution to restore the hands to the exact position they had occupied before I had started up the works. 
If Mr. Grice did not know their secret, why so much worse for Mr. Grice? I was back in my old place by the register before the folding doors unclosed again. I was conscious of a slight flush on my cheek, so I took from my pocket that perplexing grocery bill and was laboriously going down its long line of figures when Mr. Grice reappeared. He had, to my surprise, a woman's hat in his hand. Well, thought I, what does this mean? It was an elegant specimen of millinery, and was in the latest style. It had ribbons and flowers and bird's wings upon it, and presented, as it was turned about by Mr. Grice's deft hand, an appearance which some might have called charming, but to me it was simply grotesque and absurd. Is this a last spring's hat? he inquired. I don't know, but I should say it has come fresh from the milliner's. I found it lying with a pair of gloves tucked inside on an otherwise empty shelf in the dining-room closet. It struck me as looking too new for a discarded hat of either of the Misses Van Burnham. What do you think? Let me take it, said I. Oh, it's been worn, he smiled, several times, and the hat-pin is in it, too. There is something else I wish to see. He handed it over. I think it belongs to one of them, I declared. It is made by La Mole on Fifth Avenue, whose prices are simply wicked. But the young ladies have been gone, let me see, five months. Could this have been bought before then? Possibly, for this is an imported hat. But why should it have been left lying about in that careless way? It cost twenty dollars, if not thirty, and if for any reason its owner decided not to take it with her, why didn't she pack it away properly? I have no patience with the modern girl. She is made up of recklessness and extravagance. I hear that the young ladies are staying with you, was his suggestive remark. They are. Then you can make some inquiries about this hat, also about the gloves, which are an ordinary street pair. Of what color? Gray. They are quite fresh, size six. Very well, I will ask the young ladies about them. This third room is used as a dining room, and the closet where I found them is one in which glass is kept. The presence of this hat there is a mystery, but I presume the Mrs. Van Burnham can solve it. At all events, it is very improbable that it has anything to do with the crime which has been committed here. Very, I coincided. So improbable, he went on, that on second thoughts I advise you not to disturb the young ladies with questions concerning it further, unless reasons for doing so become apparent. Very well, I returned, but I was not deceived by his second thoughts. As he was holding open the parlor door before me in a very significant way, I tied my veil under my chin and was about to leave when he stopped me. I have another favor to ask, said he, and this time with his most benignant smile. Miss Butterworth, do you object to sitting up for a few nights till twelve o'clock? Not at all, I returned, if there is a good reason for it. At twelve o'clock tonight a gentleman will enter this house. If you will note him from your window, I will be obliged. To see whether he is the same one I saw last night, certainly I will take a look, but... Tomorrow night, he went on imperturbably, the test will be repeated, and I shall like to have you take another look, without prejudice, madam, 
remember, without prejudice. I have no prejudices, I began. The test may not be concluded in two nights, he proceeded, without any notice of my words. So do not be in haste to spot your man, as the vulgar expression is. And now, good night, we shall meet again tomorrow. Wait, I called peremptorily, for he was on the point of closing the door. I saw the man, but faintly, it is an impression only that I received. I would not wish a man to hang through any identification I could make. No man hangs on simple identification. We shall have to prove the crime, madam. But identification is important, even such as you can make. There was no more to be said. I uttered a calm good night and hastened away. By a judicious use of my opportunities, I had become much less ignorant on the all-important topic than when I entered the house. It was half-past eleven when I returned home, a late hour for me to enter my respectable front door alone. But circumstances had warranted my escapade, and it was with quite an easy conscience and a cheerful sense of accomplishment that I went to my room and prepared to sit out the half-hour before midnight. I am a comfortable sort of person when alone, and found no difficulty in passing this time profitably. Being very orderly, as you must have remarked, I have everything at hand for making myself a cup of tea any time of day or night. So feeling some need of refreshment, I set out the little table I reserve for such purposes, and made the tea and sat down to sip it. While doing so, I turned over the subject occupying my mind, and endeavored to reconcile the story told by the clock with my preconceived theory of the murder, but no reconcilement was possible. The woman had been killed at twelve, and the clock had fallen at five. How could the two be made to agree, and which, since agreement was impossible, should be made to give way, the theory or the testimony of the clock? Both seemed incontrovertible, and yet one must be false. Which? I was inclined to think that the trouble lay with the clock, that I had been deceived in my conclusions, and that it was not running at the time of the crime. Mr. Grice may have ordered it wound, and then have had it laid on its back to prevent the hands from shifting past the point where they had stood at the time of the crime's discovery. It was an unexplainable act, but a possible one while to suppose that it was going when the shelves fell stretched improbability to the utmost there having been so far as we could learn no one in the house for months sufficiently dexterous to set so valuable a timepiece for who could imagine the scrub-woman engaging in a task requiring such delicate manipulation no some meddlesome official had amused himself by starting up the works and the clue I had thought so important would probably prove valueless. There was humiliation in the thought, and it was a relief to me to hear the approaching carriage just as the clock on my mantel struck twelve. Springing from my chair, I put out my light and flew to the window. The coach drew up and stopped next door. I saw a gentleman descend and step briskly across the pavement to the neighboring stoop. The figure he presented was not that of the man I had seen enter the night before. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Mrs. Van Burnham Late as it was when I retired, 
I was up betimes in the morning, as soon, in fact, as the papers were distributed. The tribune lay on the stoop. Eagerly I seized it up. Eagerly I read it. From its headlines you may judge what it has to say about the murder. A startling discovery in the Van Burnham mansion in Gramercy Park. A young girl found there, lying dead under an overturned cabinet. Evidences that she was murdered before it was pulled down upon her. Thought by some to be Mrs. Howard Van Burnham. A fearful crime involved in an impenetrable mystery. What Mr. Van Burnham says about it, he does not recognize the woman as his wife. So, so, it was his wife they were talking about. I had not expected that. Well, well, no wonder the girls look startled and concerned. And I paused to recall what I had heard about Howard Van Burnham's marriage. It had not been a fortunate one. His chosen bride was pretty enough, but she had not been bred into the ways of fashionable society, and the other members of the family had never recognized her. The father especially had cut his son dead since his marriage, and had even gone so far as to threaten to dissolve the partnership in which they were all involved. Worse than this, there had been rumors of a disagreement between Howard and his wife. They were not always on good terms, and opinions differed as to which was the most at fault. So much for what I knew of these two parties mentioned. Reading the article at length, I learned that Mrs. Van Burnham was missing, that she had left Haddam for New York the day before, her husband, and had not since been heard from. Howard was confident, however, that the publicity given to her disappearance by the papers would bring immediate news of her. The effect of the whole article was to raise grave doubts as to the candor of Mr. Van Burnham's assertions, and I am told that in some of the less scrupulous papers, these doubts were not only expressed, but actual surmises ventured upon as to the identity between him and the person whom I had seen enter the house with the young girl. As for my own name, it was blazoned forth in anything but a gratifying manner. I was spoken of in one paper, a kind friend told me this, as the prying Miss Amelia as if my prying had not given the police their only clue to the identification of the criminal. The New York World was the only paper that treated me with any consideration. The young man with the small head and beady eyes was not awed by me for nothing. He mentioned me as the clever Miss Butterworth, whose testimony is likely to be of so much value in this very interesting case. It was the world I handed the Mrs. Van Burnham, when they came downstairs to breakfast. It did justice to me, and not too much injustice to him. They read it together, their two heads plunged deeply into the paper, so that I could not watch their faces. But I could see the sheet shake, and I noticed that their social veneer was not as yet laid on so thickly that they could hide their real terror and heartache when they finally confronted me again. Did you read... "'Have you seen this horrible account?' quavered Caroline as she met my eye. "'Yes, and I now understand why you felt such anxiety yesterday. "'Did you know your sister-in-law, and do you think she could have been beguiled into your father's house in that way?' "'It was Isabella who answered. "'We never have seen her and know little of her. 
but there is no telling what such an uncultivated person as she might do. But that our good brother Howard ever went in there with her is a lie, isn't it, Caroline? A base and malicious lie. Of course it is. Of course. Of course. You don't think the man you saw was Howard, do you, dear Miss Butterworth? Dear, oh dear. I am not acquainted with your brother, I returned. I have never seen him but a few times in my life. You know he has not been a very frequent visitor at your father's house lately. They looked at me wistfully, so wistfully. Say it was not Howard, whispered Caroline, stealing up a little nearer to my side. And we will never forget it, murmured Isabella, and what I am obliged to say was not her society manner. I hope to be able to say it, was my short rejoinder, made difficult by the prejudices I had formed. When I see your brother I may be able to decide at a glance that the person I saw entering your house was not he. Yes, oh yes, do you hear that, Isabella? Miss Butterworth will save Howard yet. Oh, you dear old soul, I could almost love you. This was not agreeable to me. I, a dear old soul, a term to be applied to a butter woman, not to a butterworth. I drew back, and their sentimentalities came to an end. I hope their brother Howard is not the guilty man the papers make him out to be. But if he is, the Mrs. Van Burnham's fine phrase, we could almost love you, will not deter me from being honest in the matter. Mr. Grice called early, and I was glad to be able to tell him that the gentleman who visited him the night before did not recall the impression upon me made by the other. He received the communication quietly, and from his manner I judged that it was more or less what he expected. But who can be a correct judge of a detective's manner, especially one so foxy and imperturbable as this one? I longed to ask who his visitor was, but I did not dare. Or rather, to be candid in little things that you may believe me in great, I was confident he would not tell me, so I would not compromise my dignity by a useless question. He went after five minutes' stay, and I was about to turn my attention to household affairs when Franklin came in. His sisters jumped like puppets to meet him, Oh, they cried, for one's thinking and speaking alike. Have you found her? His silence was so eloquent that he did not need to shake his head. But you will before the day is out, protested Caroline. It is too early yet, added Isabella. I never thought I would be glad to see that woman under any circumstances, continued the former. But I believe now that if I saw her coming up the street on Howard's arm, I should be happy enough to rush out and, and, give her a hug, finished the more impetuous Isabella. It was not what Caroline meant to say, but she accepted the emendation with just the slightest air of deprecation. They were both evidently much attached to Howard, and ready in his trouble to forgive and forget everything. I began to like them again. Have you read the horrid papers? And how is Papa this morning? And what shall we do to save Howard? Now flew in rapid questions from their lips, and feeling that it was but natural that they should have their little say, I sat down in my most uncomfortable chair, 
and waited for the first ebullitions to exhaust themselves. Instantly Mr. Van Burnham took them by the arm and led them away to a distant sofa. "'Are you happy here?' he asked, in what he meant for a very confidential tone. "'But I can hear, as readily as a deaf person, anything which is not meant for my ears.' "'Oh, she's kind enough,' whispered Caroline, "'but so stingy. Do take us where we can get something to eat.' "'She puts all her money into China. Such plates, and so little on them.' At these expressions, uttered with all the emphasis a whisper will allow, I just hugged myself in the corner. The dear giddy things! But they should see, they should see. I fear it was Mr. Van Burnham who now spoke. I shall have to take my sisters from under your kind care today. Their father needs them, and has, I believe, already engaged rooms for them at the plaza. I am sorry, I replied, but surely they will not leave till they have had another meal with me. Postpone your departures, young ladies, till after luncheon, and you will greatly oblige me. We may never meet so agreeably again. They fidgeted, which I had expected, and cast secret looks of almost comic appeal at their brother, but he pretended not to see them, being disposed for some reason to grant my request. Taking advantage of the momentary hesitation that ensued, I made them all three my most conciliatory bow, and said as I retreated behind the portiere, I shall give my orders for luncheon now. Meanwhile, I hope the young ladies will feel perfectly free in my house. All that I have is at their command, and was gone before they could protest. When I next saw them, they were upstairs in my front room. They were seated together in the window, and looking miserable enough to have a little diversion. Going to my closet, I brought out a bandbox. It contained my best bonnet. Young ladies, what do you think of this? I inquired, taking the bonnet out and carefully placing it on my head. I myself consider it a very becoming article of headgear, but their eyebrows went up in a scarcely complimentary fashion. You don't like it, I remarked. Well, I think a great deal of young girls' taste. I shall send it back to Madame Moore's tomorrow. I don't think much of Madame Moore, observed Isabella. And after Paris. Do you like La Mole better? I inquired, bobbing my head to and fro before the mirror, the better to conceal my interest in the venture I was making. I don't like any of them but Diabney, returned Isabella. She charges twice what La Mole does. Twice? What are these girls' purses made of? Or rather their father's. But she has the chic we are accustomed to see in French millinery. I shall never go anywhere else. We were recommended to her in Paris, put in Caroline more languidly. Her interest was only half engaged by this frivolous topic. But did you never have one of La Mole's hats? I pursued taking down a hand-mirror, ostensibly to get the effect of my bonnet in the back, but really to hide my interest in their unconscious faces. Never, retorted Isabella, I would not patronize the thing. Nor you, I urged carelessly, turning towards Caroline. No, I have never been in cider shop. Then whose is, I began and stopped. 
a detective doing the work I was would not give away the object of his question so recklessly. Then who is, I corrected, the best person after Diabne? I never can pay her prices. I should think it wicked. Oh, don't ask us, protested Isabella. We have never made a study of the best bonnet-maker. At present we wear hats. And having thus thrown their youth in my face, they turned away to the window again, not realizing that the middle-aged lady they regarded with such disdain had just succeeded in making them dance to her music most successfully. The luncheon I ordered was elaborate, for I was determined that the Mrs. Van Burnham should see that I knew how to serve a fine meal, and that my plates were not always better than my viands. I had invited in a couple of other guests, so that I should not seem to have put myself out for the two young girls, and as they were quiet people like myself, the meal passed most decorously. When it was finished, the Misses Caroline and Isabella had lost some of their consequential airs, and I really think the deference that they have since showed me is due more to the surprise they felt at the perfection of this dainty luncheon than to any considerate appreciation of my character and abilities. They left at three o'clock, still without news of Mrs. Van Burnham, and being positive by this time that the shadows were thickening about the family, I saw them depart with some regret and a positive feeling of commiseration. Had they been reared to a proper reverence for their elders, how much more easy it would have been to see the earnestness in Caroline and the affectionate impulses in Isabella. The evening paper added but little to my knowledge. Great disclosures were promised, but no hint given of their nature. The body at the morgue had not been identified by any of the hundreds who had viewed it, and Howard still refused to acknowledge it as that of his wife. The morrow was awaited with anxiety. So much for the public press. At twelve o'clock at night I was seated again in my window. The house next door had been lighted since ten, and I was in momentary expectation of its nocturnal visitor. He came promptly at the hour set, alighted the carriage with a bound, shut the carriage door with a slam, and crossed the pavement with cheerful celerity. His figure was not so positively like, nor yet so positively unlike, that of the supposed murderer, that I could definitely say, this is he, or this is not he, and I went to bed puzzled, and not a little burdened, by a sense of the responsibility imposed upon me in this matter. And so passed the day between the murder and the inquest. End of chapter 8「Chapter Nine of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Nine. Developments. Mr. Grice called about nine o'clock the next morning. Well, said he, what about the visitor who came to see me last night? Like and unlike, I answered. 
Nothing could induce me to say he is the man we want, and yet I would not dare to swear he was not. You are in doubt, then, concerning him? I am. Mr. Grice bowed, reminded me of the inquest, and left. Nothing was said about the hat. At ten o'clock I prepared to go to the place designated by him. I had never attended an inquest in my life, and felt a little flurried in consequence. But by the time I had tied the strings of my bonnet, the despised bonnet, which, by the way, I did not return to Moore's, I had conquered this weakness and acquired a demeanor more in keeping with my very important position as chief witness in a serious police investigation. I had sent for a carriage to take me, and I rode away from my house amid the shouts of some half-dozen boys collected on the curbstone. But I did not allow myself to feel dashed by this publicity. On the contrary, I held my head as erect as nature intended, and my back kept the line my good health warrants. The path of duty has its thorny passages, but it is, for strong minds like mine, to ignore them. Promptly at ten o'clock I entered the room reserved for the inquest, and was ushered to the seat appointed me. Though never a self-conscious woman, I could not but be aware of the many eyes that followed me, and endeavoured so to demean myself that there should be no question as to my respectable standing in the community. This I considered due to the memory of my father, who was very much in my thoughts that day. The coroner was already in his seat when I entered, and though I did not perceive the good face of Mr. Grice anywhere in the vicinity, I had no doubt he was within earshot. Of the other people I took small note, save of the honest scrubwoman, whose red face and anxious eyes under a preposterous bonnet, which did not come from La Mole's, I caught vague glimpses as the crowd between us surged to and fro. None of the Van Burnhams were visible, but this did not necessarily mean that they were absent. Indeed, I was very sure from certain indications that more than one member of the family could be seen in the small room connecting with the large one in which we witnesses sat with the jury. The policeman, Carroll, was the first man to talk. He told of my stopping him on his beat and of his entrance into Mr. Van Burnham's house with the scrubwoman. He gave the details of his discovery of the dead woman's body on the parlor floor, and insisted that no one, here he looked very hard at me, had been allowed to touch the body till relief had come to him from headquarters. Mrs. Boppert, the scrubwoman, followed him, and if she was watched by no one else in that room, she was watched by me. Her manner before the coroner was no more satisfactory, according to my notion, than it had been in Mr. Van Burnham's parlor. She gave a very perceptible start when they spoke her name, and looked quite scared when the Bible was held out towards her. But she took the oath notwithstanding, and with her testimony the inquiry began in earnest. "'What is your name?' asked the coroner. As this was something she could not help knowing, she uttered the necessary words glibly, though in a way that showed she resented his impertinence in asking her what he already knew. "'Where do you live, and what do you do for a living?' rapidly followed. 
She replied that she was a scrubwoman and cleaned people's houses, and having said this she assumed a very dogged air, which I thought strange enough to raise a question in the minds of those who watched her. But no one else seemed to regard it as anything but the embarrassment of ignorance. "'How long have you known the Van Burnham family?' the coroner went on. Two years, sir, come next Christmas. Have you often done work for them? I cleaned the house twice a year, fall and spring. Why were you at the house two days ago? To scrub the kitchen floors, sir, and put the pantries in order. Had you received notice to do so? Yes, sir, through Mr. Franklin Van Burnham. And was that the first day of your work there? No, sir, I had been there all the day before. "'You don't speak loud enough,' objected the coroner. "'Remember that everyone in this room wants to hear you.' She looked up, and with a frightened air, surveyed the crowd about her. Publicity evidently made her most uncomfortable, and her voice sank rather than rose. "'Where did you get the key of the house, and by what door did you enter?' "'I went in at the basement, sir, and I got the key at Mr. Van Burnham's agent in Day Street.' I had to go for it. Sometimes they send it to me, but not this time. And now relate your meeting with the policeman on Wednesday morning in front of Mr. Van Burnham's house. She tried to tell her story, but she made awkward work of it, and they had to ply her with questions to get at the smallest fact. But finally she managed to repeat what we already knew, how she went with the policeman into the house, and how they stumbled upon the dead woman in the parlor. Further than this they did not question her, and I, Amelia Butterworth, had to sit in silence and see her go back to her seat, redder than before, but with a strangely satisfied air that told me she had escaped more easily than she had expected. And yet Mr. Grice had been warned that she knew more than appeared, and by one in whom he seemed to have placed some confidence. The doctor was called next. His testimony was most important, and contained a surprise for me, and more than one surprise for the others. After a short preliminary examination, he was requested to state how long the woman had been dead when he was called to examine her. More than twelve and less than eighteen hours was his quiet reply. Had the rigor mortis set in? No, but it began very soon after. Did you examine the wounds made by the falling shelves and the vases that tumbled with them? I did. Will you describe them? He did so. And now, there was a pause in the coroner's question, which roused us all to its importance. Which of these many serious wounds was, in your opinion, the cause of her death? The witness was accustomed to such scenes, and was perfectly at home in them. Surveying the coroner with a respectful air, he turned slowly towards the jury and answered in a slow and impressive manner. I feel ready to declare, sirs, that none of them did. She was not killed by the falling of the cabinet upon her. Not killed by the falling shelves? Why not? Were they not sufficiently heavy, or did they not strike her in a vital place? They were heavy enough, and they struck her in a way to kill her if she had not already been dead when they fell upon her. As it was, they simply bruised a body from which life had already departed. As this was putting it very plainly, 
Many people of the crowd who had not been acquainted with these facts previously showed their interest in a very unmistakable manner. But the coroner, ignoring these symptoms of growing excitement, hastened to say, This is a very serious statement you are making, doctor. If she did not die from the wounds inflicted by the objects which fell upon her, from what cause did she die? Can you say that her death was a natural one, and that the falling of the shelves was merely an unhappy accident following it? No, sir, her death was not natural. She was killed, but not by the falling cabinet. Killed, and not by the cabinet? How, then? Was there another wound upon her which you regard as mortal? Yes, sir. Suspecting that she had perished from other means than appeared, I made a most rigid examination of her body when I discovered under the hair in the nape of her neck a minute spot, which upon probing I found to be the end of a small thin point of steel. It had been thrust by a careful hand into the most vulnerable part of the body, and death must have ensued at once. This was too much for certain excitable persons present, and a momentary disturbance arose, which, however, was nothing to that in my own breast. So, so, it was her neck that had been pierced, and not her heart. Mr. Grice had allowed us to think it was the latter, but it was not this fact which stupefied me, but the skill and diabolical coolness of the man who had inflicted this death-thrust. After order had been restored, which I will say was very soon, the coroner, with an added gravity of tone, went on with his questions. Did you recognize this bit of steel as belonging to any instrument in the medical profession? No, it was of too untempered steel to have been manufactured for any thrusting or cutting purposes. It was of the commonest kind, and had broken short off in the wound. It was only the end that I found. Have you this end with you, the point, I mean, which you found embedded in the base of the dead woman's brain? I have, sir, and he handed it over to the jury. As they passed it along, the coroner remarked, Later we will show you the remaining portion of this instrument of death, which did not tend to allay the general excitement. Seeing this, the coroner humored the growing interest by pushing on his inquiries. Doctor, he asked, are you prepared to say how long a time elapsed between the infliction of this fatal wound and those which disfigured her? No, sir, not exactly, but some little time. Some little time when the murderer was in the house only ten minutes? All looked their surprise, and, as if the coroner had divined this feeling of general curiosity, he leaned forward and emphatically repeated, more than ten minutes? The doctor, who had every appearance of realizing the importance of his reply, did not hesitate. Evidently his mind was quite made up. Yes, more than ten minutes. This was the shock I received from his testimony. I remembered what the clock had revealed to me, but I did not move a muscle of my face. I was learning self-control under these repeated surprises. This is an unexpected statement, remarked the coroner. What reasons have you to urge in explanation of this? Very simple and very well-known ones, at least among the profession. 
There was too little blood seen for the wounds to have been inflicted before death or within a few minutes after it. Had the woman been living when they were made, or even had she been dead but a short time, the floor would have been deluged with the blood gushing from so many and such serious injuries. But the effusion was slight, so slight that I noticed it at once, and came to the conclusions mentioned before I found the mark of the stab that occasioned death. I see, I see, and was that the reason you called in two neighboring physicians to view the body before it was removed from the house? Yes, sir, in so important a matter I wished to have my judgment confirmed. And these physicians were Dr. Campbell of 110 East Street and Dr. Jacobs of Lexington Avenue. Are these gentlemen here? inquired the coroner of an officer who stood near. They are, sir. Very well, we will now proceed to ask one or two more questions of this witness. You have told us that even had the woman been dead but a few minutes, when she received these contusions, the floor would have been more or less deluged by her blood. What reason have you for this statement? This, that in a few minutes, let us say ten, since that number has been used, the body has not had time to cool, nor have the blood vessels had sufficient opportunity to stiffen, so as to prevent the free effusion of blood. Is a body still warm at ten minutes after death? It is. So that your conclusions were logical deductions from well-known facts? Certainly, sir. A pause of some duration followed. When the coroner again proceeded, it was to remark, The case is complicated by these discoveries, but we must not allow ourselves to be daunted by them. Let me ask you, if you had found any marks upon this body which might aid in its identification. 1. A slight scar on the left ankle. What kind of a scar? Describe it. It was such as a burn might leave. In shape, it was long and narrow, and it ran up the limb from the ankle bone. Was it on the right foot? No, on the left. Did you call the attention of anyone to this mark during or after your examination? Yes, I showed it to Mr. Grice, the detective, and to my two coadjutors, and I spoke of it to Mr. Howard Van Burnham, son of the gentleman in whose house the body was found. It was the first time this young gentleman's name had been mentioned, and it made my blood run cold to see how many sidelong looks and expressive shrugs it caused in the motley assemblage. But I had no time for sentiment. The inquiry was growing too interesting. And why, asked the coroner, did you mention it to this young man in preference to others? Because Mr. Grice requested me to because the family, as well as the young man himself, had evinced some apprehension lest the deceased might prove to be his missing wife, and this seemed a likely way to settle the question. And did it, did he acknowledge it to be a mark he remembered to have seen on his wife? He said she had such a scar, but he would not acknowledge the deceased to be his wife. Did he see the scar? No, he would not look at it. Did you invite him to? I did, but he showed no curiosity. Doubtless thinking that silence would best emphasize this fact, which certainly was an astonishing one, 
The coroner waited a minute, but there was no silence. An indescribable murmur from a great many lips filled up the gap. I felt a movement of pity for this proud family, whose good name was thus threatened in the person of this young gentleman. Doctor, continued the coroner, as soon as the murmur had subsided, did you notice the color of the woman's hair? It was light brown. Did you sever a lock? Have you a sample of this hair here to show us? I have, sir. At Mr. Grice's suggestion, I cut off two small locks. One I gave him and the other I brought here. Let me see it. The doctor passed it up, and in sight of everyone present, the coroner tied a string around it and attached a ticket to it. This is to prevent all mistake, explained this very methodical functionary, laying the lock aside on the table in front of him. Then he turned again to the witness. Doctor, we are indebted to you for your valuable testimony, and as you are a busy man, we will now excuse you. Let Dr. Jacobs be called. As this gentleman, as well as the witness who followed him, merely corroborated the statements of the other, and made it an accepted fact that the shelves had fallen upon the body of the girl some time after the first wound had been inflicted, I will not attempt to repeat their testimony. The question now agitating me was whether they would endeavor to fix the time at which the shelves fell by the evidence furnished by the clock. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Important Evidence Evidently not, for the next words I heard were, Miss Amelia Butterworth. I had not expected to be called so soon, and was somewhat flustered by the suddenness of the summons, for I am only human. But I rose with suitable composure, and passed to the place indicated by the coroner, in my usual straightforward manner, heightened only by a sense of the importance of my position, both as a witness and a woman whom the once famous Mr. Grice had taken more or less into his confidence. My appearance seemed to awaken an interest for which I was not prepared. I was just thinking how well my name had sounded, uttered in the sonorous tones of the coroner, and how grateful I ought to be for the courage I had displayed in substituting the genteel name of Amelia for the weak and sentimental one of Araminta, when I became conscious that the eyes directed towards me were filled with an expression not easy to understand. I should not like to call it admiration, and I will not call it amusement, and yet it seemed to be made up of both. While I was puzzling myself over it, the first question came. As my examination before the coroner only brought out the facts already related, I will not burden you with a detailed account of it. One portion alone may be of interest. I was being questioned in regard to the appearance of the couple I had seen entering the Van Burnham mansion, when the coroner asked if the young woman's step was light or if it betrayed hesitation. I replied, no hesitation. She moved quickly, almost gaily. And he was more moderate, but there was no signification in that. He may have been older. No theories, Miss Butterworth. It is facts we are after. Now do you know that he was older? No, sir. Did you get any idea as to his age? The impression he made was that of being a young man. 
and his height was medium and his figure was slight and elegant he moved as a gentleman moves and of this i can speak with great positiveness do you think you could identify him miss butterworth if you should see him i hesitated as i perceived that the whole swaying mass eagerly awaited my reply i even turned my head because i saw others doing so but i regretted this when i found that i as well as others was glancing towards the door beyond which the van burnhams were supposed to sit to cover up the false move i had made for i had no wish yet to centre suspicions upon anybody i turned my face quickly back to the crowd and declared in as emphatic a tone as i could command i have thought i could do so if i saw him under the same circumstances as those in which my first impression was made but lately i have begun to doubt even that i should never dare to trust to my memory in this regard the coroner looked disappointed and so did the people around me it is a pity remarked the coroner that you did not see more plainly and now how did these persons gain an entrance into the house i answered in the most succinct way possible i told them how he had used a door key in entering of the length of time the man stayed inside and of his appearance on going away i also related how i came to call a policeman to investigate the matter the next day and corroborated the statements of this official as to the appearance of the deceased at the time of discovery and there my examination stopped I was not asked any questions tending to bring out the cause of the suspicion I entertained against the scrubwoman, nor were the discoveries I had made in conjunction with Mr. Grice inquired into. It was just as well, perhaps, but I would never approve of a piece of work done for me in this slipshod fashion. A recess now followed. Why it was thought necessary I cannot imagine, unless the gentleman wished to smoke had they felt as much interest in this murder as i did they would not have wanted bite or sup until the dreadful question was settled there being a recess i improved the opportunity by going into the restaurant near by where one can get very good buns and coffee at a reasonable price but i could have done without them the next witness to my astonishment was mr grice as he stepped forward heads were craned and many women rose in their seats to get a glimpse of the noted detective i showed no curiosity myself for by this time i knew his features well but i did feel a great satisfaction in seeing him before the coroner for now thought i we shall hear something worth our attention but his examination though interesting was not complete the coroner remembered his promise to show us the other end of the steel point which had been broken off in the dead girl's brain limited himself to such inquiries as brought out the discovery of the broken hat-pin in mr van burnham's parlor register no mention was made by the witness of any assistance which he may have received in making this discovery a fact which caused me to smile men are so jealous of any interference in their affairs the end found in the register and the end which the coroner's physician had drawn from the poor woman's head were both handed to the jury 
and it was interesting to note how each man made his little effort to fit the two ends together, and the looks they interchanged as they found themselves successful. Without doubt, and in the eyes of all, the instrument of death had been found, but what an instrument! The felt hat which had been discovered under the body was now produced, and the one hole made by a similar pin examined. Then Mr. Grice was asked if any other pin had been picked up from the floor of the room, and he replied, No, and the fact was established in the minds of all present that the young woman had been killed by a pin taken from her own hat. A subtle and cruel crime, the work of calculating intellect, was the coroner's comment as he allowed the detective to sit down, which expression of opinion I thought reprehensible as tending to prejudice the jury against the only person at present suspected. The inquiry now took a turn. The name of Miss Ferguson was called. Who was Miss Ferguson? It was a new name to most of us, and her face when she rose only added to the general curiosity. It was the plainest face imaginable, yet it was neither a bad nor unintelligent one. As I studied it and noted the nervous contraction that disfigured her lip, I could not but be sensible of my blessings. I am not handsome myself, though there have been persons who've called me so, but neither am I ugly, and in contrast to this woman, well, I will say nothing. I only know that after seeing her, I felt profoundly grateful to a kind providence. As for the poor woman herself, she knew she was no beauty, but she had become so accustomed to seeing the eyes of other people turn away from her face, that beyond the nervous twitching of which I have spoken, she showed no feeling. "'What is your full name, and where do you live?' asked the coroner. "'My name is Susan Ferguson, and I live in Haddam, Connecticut,' was her reply, uttered in such soft and beautiful tones that everyone was astonished. It was like a stream of limpid water flowing from a most unsightly-looking rock.' Excuse the metaphor, I do not often indulge. Do you keep boarders? I do, a few, sir, such as my house will accommodate. Whom have you had with you this summer? I knew what her answer would be before she uttered it. So did a hundred others. But they showed their knowledge in different ways. I did not show mine at all. I have had with me, said she, a Mr. and Mrs. Van Burnham from New York, Mr. Howard Van Burnham is his full name, if you wish me to be explicit. Anyone else? A Mr. Hull, also from New York, and a young couple from Hartford. My house accommodates no more. How long have the first-mentioned couple been with you? Three months. They came in June. Are they with you still? Virtually, sir. They have not moved their trunks but neither of them is in Haddam at present. Mrs. Van Burnham came to New York last Monday morning, and in the afternoon her husband also left, presumably for New York. I have seen nothing of either of them since. It was on Tuesday night the murder occurred. Did either of them take a trunk? No, sir. A handbag? Yes, Mrs. Van Burnham carried a bag, but it was a very small one. 
Large enough to hold a dress? Oh, no, sir. And Mr. Van Burnham? He carried an umbrella. I saw nothing else. Why did they not leave together? Did you hear anyone say? Yes, I heard them say Mrs. Van Burnham came against her husband's wishes. He did not want her to leave Haddam, but she would, and he was none too pleased at it. Indeed, they had words about it, and as both our rooms overlooked the same veranda, I could not help hearing some of their talk. Will you tell us what you heard? It does not seem right, thus this honest woman spoke, but if it's the law, I must not go against it. I heard him say these words. I have changed my mind, Louise. The more I think of it, the more disinclined I am to have you meddle in the matter. Besides, it will do no good. You will only add to the prejudice against you, and our life will become more unbearable than it is now. Of what were they speaking? I do not know. And what did she reply? Oh, she uttered a torrent of words that had less sense in them than feeling. She wanted to go. She would go. She had not changed her mind, and considered that her impulses were as well worth following as his cool judgment. She was not happy, and never had been happy, and meant there should be a change, even if it were for the worse. But she did not believe it would be for the worse. Was she not pretty? Was she not very pretty when in distress and looking up thus? And I heard her fall on her knees, a movement which called out a grunt from her husband, but whether this was of an expression of approval or disapproval I cannot say. A silence followed during which I caught the sound of his steady tramping up and down the room. Then she spoke again in a petulant way. It may seem foolish to you, she cried, knowing me as you do, and being used to seeing me in all my moods, but to him it will be a surprise, and I will so manage it that it will affect all we want, and more, too, perhaps. I, I have a genius for some things, Howard, and my better angel tells me I shall succeed. And what did he reply to that? that the name of her better angel was vanity, that his father would see through her blandishments, that he forbade her to prosecute her schemes, and much more to the same effect, to all of which she answered by a vigorous stamp of her foot, and the declaration that she was going to do what she thought best, in spite of all opposition, that it was a lover and not a tyrant that she had married, and that if he did not know what was good for himself, she did, and that when he received an intimation from his father that the breach in the family was closed, then he would acknowledge that if she had no fortune and no connections, she had at least a plentiful supply of wit. Upon which he remarked, a poor qualification when it verges upon folly, which seemed to close the conversation, for I heard no more till the sound of her skirts rustling past my door assured me she had carried her point and was leaving the house. This was not done without great discomfiture to her husband, if one may judge from the few brief but emphatic words that escaped him before he closed his own door and followed her down the hall. Do you remember those words? They were swear words, sir. I am sorry to say it, but he certainly cursed her and his own folly. Yet I always thought he loved her. Did you see her after she passed your door? 
Yes, sir, on the walk outside. Was she then on the way to the train? Yes, sir. Carrying the bag of which you have spoken? Yes, sir. Another proof of the state of feeling between them, for he was very considerate in his treatment of ladies, and I never saw him do anything ungallant before. You say you watched her as she went down the walk? Yes, sir. It is human nature, sir. I have no other excuse to offer. It was an apology I myself might have made. I conceived a liking for this homely, matter-of-fact woman. Did you note her dress? Yes, sir. That is human nature also, or rather, woman's nature. Particularly, madam, so that you can describe it to the jury before you? I think so. Will you then be good enough to tell us what sort of a dress Mrs. Van Burnham wore when she left your house for the city? It was black and white plaid silk, very rich. Why, what did this mean? We had all expected a very different description. It was made fashionably, and the sleeves, well, it's impossible to describe the sleeves. She wore no wrap, which seemed foolish to me, for we have had very sudden changes sometimes in September. A plaid dress, and did you notice her hat? Oh, I have seen the hat often. It was of every conceivable color. It would have been called bad taste at one time, but nowadays... The pause was significant. More than one man in the room chuckled, but the women kept a discreet silence. Would you know that hat if you saw it? I should think I would. The emphasis was that of a countrywoman, and amused some people notwithstanding the melodious tones in which it was uttered. But it did not amuse me. My thoughts had flown to the hat which Mr. Grice had found in the third room of Mr. Van Burnham's house, and which was of every color of the rainbow. The coroner asked two other questions, one in regards to the gloves worn by Mrs. Van Burnham, and the other in regard to her shoes. To the first Miss Ferguson replied that she did not notice her gloves, and to the other that Mrs. Van Burnham was very fashionable, and as pointed shoes were in fashion, in cities at least, she probably wore pointed shoes. The discovery that Mrs. Van Burnham had been differently dressed on that day, from the young woman found dead in the Van Burnham parlors, had acted as a shock upon most of the spectators. They were just beginning to recover from it when Miss Ferguson sat down. The coroner was the only one who had not seemed at a loss. Why, we were soon destined to know. End of chapter 10